Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. The Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, or NAGPRA, was passed by Congress all the way back in 1990. It called for federal agencies and federally funded museums to repatriate or return Native American cultural items, including sacred objects and, in many cases, human remains. A recent report from ProPublica found that museums and institutions across the country had failed to really meet the federal law where it concerns human remains. For example, the Harvard Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology has made just 39% of the more than 10,000 Native American remains it reported to the federal government as available for return. Coming up, Kate Seltzer with Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project, shares what she found when she checked in with museums around where we live. But first, we hear from some of the team that has put this report together at ProPublica, which was done in collaboration with NBC News. Joining us is Mary Hudetz, a member of the Crow Tribe in Montana and a ProPublica reporter. She's also the former president of the Native American Journalist Association and has covered Native American issues for more than a decade. Thanks so much for joining us, Mary. Thank you for having me. We also have with us Logan Jaffe, who is also a ProPublica reporter. Welcome to the show, Logan. Thank you, Kat. And just to remind our listeners that you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Mary, I want to start with you. Can you first explain to our listeners just why did these institutions collect so many indigenous human remains? The collecting um, for museums in the United States actually began a very long time ago um, in the 1800s. There was a movement, a scientific movement for institutions to collect um, remains to study them. Uh, And as the country was expanding west, um, a lot of institutions, and it's hard to say this, but saw collecting um, and excavating graves as a way to learn more about the people who had lived on this continent um, for centuries. Uh, it's, I would say it's hard to say that because there were living Native people, um, as there are now, who uh, they could have also spoke with. But, um, you know, they, Native people were uh, also hard to say, but dehumanized um, in those times. And, and um, so the collections happened for science um, and many institutions saw it as their uh, like duty almost or way of building prestige to collect Native American remains, collect these massive collections um, uh, for research. So that's where it began, but it continued. Um, it's, it, it's continued well into the 20th century. 
And we've also heard from Connecticut Humanities Executive Director Jason Mancini about the reasons institutions or even individuals might be in possession of human remains, which also includes regional looting. I think you'll find he echoes some of what you just said, Mary. Um, Let's take a listen. And regionally speaking, um, you know, there is an interest in indigenous people um, during that time. And some early accounts uh, in the 1800s about um, Native American burials um, in cemeteries where people um, were engaged in this kind of um, search would go out and start digging in Indian cemeteries, (coughs) recovering those remains um, and bringing them back to their institutions to study. And there were some, you know, there's this really famous account from Rhode Island um, where uh, one anthropologist went, or actually it was a medical doctor, went to a Narragansett cemetery and and, um, excavated some human remains and then did a big public display. And it was sort of, um, you know, all the funerary objects were so elaborate and ornate that um, all the people who attended that um, went with shovels and pickaxes to loot the rest of the cemetery. Um, it just sort of an astonishing moment, but the scale of looting um, just amplified. And, you know, quite frankly, who knows where all of those remains and, and funerary objects went, um, but it's sort of that, that dispersal, um, you know, things end up in, in family collections and you know, local historical society collections in addition to these museum collections. Um, And that type of behavior was going on across the region. Logan, can you respond to what Jason Mancini said? What's your sense that even with national parks numbers that you have worked off of were incomplete? And when we consider the activity that he just described, especially with the prevalence of unmarked burial sites, you know, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, you know, I was listening pretty, pretty closely. And, you know, it's unfortunately sounds like a a familiar story from the reporting we've done and from the historical research we've done. You know, I live in Chicago and, you know, biggest institution over here is the Field Museum. And the founding of the Field Museum among, you know, their earliest collections are the ancestral remains that were, you know, dug up by not even a profession, like the, the profession of archaeology in the, you know, the 1870s, 1890s was really not only really becoming a thing. So these were amateurs um, trying to, you know, justify their actions by, you know, as Mary was saying, you know, putting them under this sort of scientific lens. But this was, this was, you know, grave robbing and these ancestral remains from, you know, central and southern Ohio were, um, you know, taken back from grave sites to the Field Museum and they became the Field Museum's earliest collections and they were on display at the World's Fair. And the Field Museum still has those remains and they say that, you know, they're, they're very um, old and therefore it can be, from their perspective, uh, kind of complicated to find an appropriate uh, 
modern tribe to repatriate those remains to. But that's a big issue that's still kind of um, in question. Can you tell us a little bit about what the national parks numbers are? You know, why did you use that sure. to base your work off of? Because I think only museums receiving federal funds are actually reporting or at least faithfully reporting this data. Sure. Yeah. So the law defines museums as any institution that receives federal funding. So this could also include um, universities. It can include, uh, you know, a, a county park department. So the numbers all around the country, and this is the lowest estimate, you know, that we have, um, well, fewer than half of all of the remains in the country have not been returned to tribes. Um, and that's about 110,000 have not been, have not been made available to tribes. Um, I think the, the number, you know, that NAGPRA began with, you know, it was more thousand, I think, Mary. Yeah. And I would just jump in and say, um, the numbers certainly are incomplete. And, um, we've heard, um, as we prepared to publish earlier this year, heard these concerns from people who work in tribal governments that the numbers are self-reported. Mm-hmm. Um, however, it offers a place to start the conversation um, and offers a pretty wide um, view of the country. You can see it on our, on our website, the maps of, of where items were taken from um, in one snapshot. And I, I think that that, I think that even the numbers as low as 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 self, even if these may be the minimum numbers, um, they're pretty astonishing. Well, both of you have mentioned that the data is incomplete, and Jason Mancini also talked about the scale of the grave robbering and and just the interest in in that that sort of activity at the time. Uh, Mary, can you describe the range of responses that you got from museums? Because NAGPRA only requires requires them to make a good faith effort. How loosely can that be interpreted? Yeah, um, it is quite a range. I think we've we've received no responses from a a small number, a very small number of museums. Um, Very often, I think at this point in time, and so it makes it a really interesting time to report on this project, a lot of institutions are saying, we acknowledge we have these collections. Um, You know, Harvard specifically has a public, more of a public apology, not directly to us, that um, we're they apologize for their past collecting practices. Um, so that's a shift, you know, so from say like, at least for many institutions, we also report on Big Berkeley, that's a shift from uh, five, 10 years ago um, when that was not the tone. Uh, however, then there's other institutions that say um, that they wanna prioritize returning items. They uh, And then I think our questions as accountability reporters are okay. If, if this is a priority, let's start to look at, um, you, you know, the resources devoted to those returns. Uh, what is the, are they closing the gap between the rhetoric of we're sorry for what we have, we want to prioritize this work and to, and actually prioritizing um, the work. And then a few institutions, I think, um, and this, our coverage has now sort of, I, I see it at least, um, been supplemented by dozens of other news um, organizations across the country, and we can see apologies within those um, that coverage as well. And I think some institutions do take issue with. Um, we chose a term called "available for return" in our data to say like an uh, institution has filed a federal notice, 
and says that a tribe, um, we believe these remains or belongings um, should be repatriated to this tribe. And then the tribe claims it, and that gets into sort of the uh, process of NAGPRA. Um, but I think some institutions, it's interesting to me, um, have taken the stance that if just by saying they have these collections, they're saying they're available return for return. Um, and it's a little bit disputing, I think, our, our choice of words, <laughs> but we 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 know through our reporting that there is um, once an institution says we have these remains, they come from this region. Twenty tribes in that region may be able to claim them. That there are long, drawn-out consultation processes. Sometimes take a decade, and they don't. They're not always smooth. There's a lot of um, a lot of heartbreak on the side of the tribes in in trying to claim their ancestors and, and uh, produce material that proves they are descended from them. We definitely want to dig deeper with you describing the designation made available for return in a little bit. But I do also want to ask, Mary, in what ways and is this also a capacity issue when we think about the priorities tribes have versus the priorities that museums have that they collected these objects and remains in the first place? Mm. So repatriation is uh, very expensive, and a lot of tribes that pursue it, maybe it doesn't have to be, but but it is, um, who pursue it. We see, we've found, you know, um, a lot of times in our reporters, we're, we're speaking with attorneys and lawyers, so they're hiring um, legal counsel to work through the process and archaeologists. Um, and so you add that uh, staffing to... A cap- like a, a budget of providing basic services, roads, healthcare, um, uh, economic opportunities for your people. Uh, so for tribes, uh, one source told us that it could cost when things begin, uh, re- claims start to become disputed by an institution can cost a, um, a tribe $100,000 for a single repatriation. Um, on the institution side, institutions also say that it's a very expensive process um, and that maybe they don't have the capacity to pursue that work. And we take note of that, especially I think with, with small institutions, with big institutions, um, they, they will also say it. And that could be owing to their very, very large collections. Um, you know, Berkeley has 9,000 ancestors. Um, Harvard University has more than 6,000, I believe, currently. Um, and so it's, then you start to get into them. What does it mean for, for them to account for their history and prior uh, towards the work and devote the resources? And Logan, you've obviously been working closely with Mary on this. What are some of the responses that you've seen or just what was your experience like working on this? Yeah, I mean, so in addition to, you know, all of the sort of variety of responses that, you know, that Mary was just speaking to, there are also some institutions that have replied to our, our questions about, you know, the, the number of ancestral remains that they had and said, you know, all of these are, are available for, for return, but they're also in some cases almost entirely marked by this category under the law that is called, um, the law calls culturally unidentifiable, and so sometimes that can mean that that institution really has done no 
consultations, no reaching out to tribes to even begin that process, but can kind of rely on that idea that because they because they basically filed their inventories and paperwork with the National Park Service, that they are in compliance with the law and are not and they don't need to be proactive. And, you know, a lot of sources have told us that that is one of the biggest you know, failures of of the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act is that it doesn't have these, you know, strong um, enforcement mechanisms or fines. Uh, there are some fines involved, but, you know, basically if an institution doesn't want to repatriate, there's not a lot of ways to compel them to do so. Well, and Logan, you just mentioned the phrase culturally unidentifiable, which is something that we definitely want to dig into in a little bit. But want to backtrack real quick because we talked about the phrase made available for return earlier. So our own investigative reporter, Kate Seltzer, will join us in a little bit. But she spoke with the repatriation registrar at the Yale Peabody Museum, Jesse Cohen, who responded to this designation that we've been speaking of made available to return. Let's take a listen. Um, so I think that phrase made available is a new phrase um, kind of brought on by the ProPublica article and it seems to refer to um, made available being remains that have been consulted upon and then repatriated and then everything else has not been made available. Um, The items and remains that have not been quote unquote made available um, are fully available for consultation. We just haven't done the outreach yet nor has a tribe come to us yet. Can you respond to this, Mary? Um, you know, if that's the museum stance, then that is very much as they say in, this, in the spirit of NAGPRA, that they view the remains as being available for return. Um, we chose our language pretty um, carefully uh, because we knew we couldn't say these remains at this institution. You know, we're, we're writing about we have data for 600 institutions and individual web pages for each. Um, so we had to choose a unit, like a, a blanket term. Um, and we know that there is, as I had mentioned earlier, um, remains may be said to be available for return, but they aren't. And even when a museum says, okay, we're ready to, you know, we just reported a story recently on UC Berkeley. And within that story, that story was, um, the story of the Chumash tribe, uh, the San Leonis Chumash. And um, they waited a decade. The, the Berkeley had um, filed a federal notice saying these remains are, these ancestral remains are people who are the ancestors of the Chumash tribe. And it took 10 years for the actual physical transfer to happen. Um, so there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of leeway in the law and the language. Um, so we, we took a lot of um, care to, to think about just the right way to phrase well, phrase our phrase things and describe our data. Well, I, I love but not love that you mentioned the Chumash tribe, Mary, just because uh, I was in California reporting and I reported with the Chumash tribe pretty extensively. Mm-hmm. And so we'd love to hear about what their experience has been like. But I also want to ask Logan, you know, what what are your thoughts about what Jesse Cohen said? Do you agree with Mary? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, there's there's been a number, you know, Yale is not the only institution that, you know, has um has commented on our our made available for return choice here, but you know, I I would say I would point people to our 
um, online tool, which is an extensive database in which, you know, anybody can look up um, by state, by institution, even by tribe, and, you know, learn a little bit more based on federal data about the, about, you know, the, how many ancestral remains, what their repatriation rates are at various institutions. And on that website, we take note to, you know, specifically talk about our word choice of made available for return. And, you know, so there's a bit more explanation there. And I will say that, um, you know, I, 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 we believe it's also an accurate reflection of sort of the intricacies of the law, because, you know, it, it's sort of a technicality, but when, an institution does, you know, say that there are that there is a cultural affiliation between ancestral remains and and a federally recognized tribe. The next step is it, they publish the institution publishes a notice in the federal register, and it and and it lists any tribe that may also be able to make a claim to these ancestral remains. Which is important because, you know, at least in the Midwest, there are a number of tribes that see these ancestors, these ancestral remains as a collective responsibility. So um, when that list is published, the tech, the all of those remains are made available for any of um, those tribal nations to make claims. So that is an important part of the process that we believe that language reflects. Well, and speaking of language and making claims, I do want to come back to talk about what you've mentioned earlier, the phrase culturally unidentifiable. So I want to dig into this designation um, that a lot of institutions and museums are using. So, Mary, what does it mean if an object or human remains are deemed culturally unidentifiable? Yeah, for institutions um, to make that designation, it means that they don't they're saying that they cannot be sure or do not know where, which tribe those ancestors should be repatriated to. They're, or they cannot make a link between a present day tribe and, um, and those ancestors. And so uh, there's, there are maybe a couple hundred, I'd have to recheck the data, examples where institutions truly do not know, or they say they do not know where the remains came from. There's no geographic data tied to them. Um, that's a very, very limited data, uh, like subset within a very, very large data set um, of hundreds of thousands of items and, and then more than 100,000 ancestors. Very often institutions know exactly where the remains came from, sometimes the exact place on the land um, and then the and then there's clear evidence of tribes having a history in that area, migration, um, former settlements, and and those. When we see that, then we start to um, have more questions about just why uh, a, a set of human remains cannot be affiliated to a tribe. Um, so that's, I think, the short answer. Logan has done a ton of reporting on this too. I think her findings in Illinois are, are pretty stunning, um, especially around, you know, institutions have different ways for deciding that remains might be culturally unidentifiable. Uh, they may choose a year. They may say, we can't, we, if the remains are over a thousand years old, we're not gonna be able to affiliate them. That can be um, pretty offensive to tribes because they feel they know who they are. They have stories, they have their own history that they've passed down through generations. And they feel that that history can be discounted. 
Um, and then sometimes the years are, are even even more recent than that. Well, and Logan, I know you have to uh, leave the show in a little bit, so I want to touch on you real quick. What do you have to say with what Mary just said, or is there anything else you would like to share with us in terms of um, what we're talking about in, with the cultural identifiable objects? Yeah, I mean, I'll say, so I've done a lot of reporting in Illinois, and even though, so the Illinois State Museum um, has a, th their story of repatriation is, Basically, when the uh, federal law passed in the 1990s, they completed their inventories, but their, what they wrote was that they would not establish a cultural affiliation for any remains that predated the year 1673. And they chose that particular year because that is when, um, as they saw it, the first sort of reliable written records were were completed by um, French Canadian explorers who were, um, you know, surveying the Mississippi River and kind of in the land that today is, you know, called Illinois. So basically they chose this Eurocentric year to as a as an artificial divide between ancestral remains that they believed they could affiliate with modern tribes and remains that they could not. And it turned out that, you know, more than 98% of their collection of human remains predated the year 1673. And I believe recently, uh, President Joe Biden has also made moves to eliminate this designation. Uh, Logan, can you break that down for us? Sure, yeah, there's a new, um, you know, the, there are new regulations proposed to the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, and those are still um, and, you know, I believe a lot of institutions, a lot of tribal nations, a lot of organizations have commented on that. One of those, you know, proposed regulations is to eliminate that um, designation of culturally unidentifiable. And, you know, we're we're following how that ends up. And for both of you, let's start with Logan real quick first. You know, what did you observe from museums in our region? Is there anything unique that stood out to you? Sure. So I, um, you know, just pulling up our our um, news app here, I can type in um, Connecticut to our news app. And, you know, right away, we can learn that institutions in Connecticut reported making 15% of more than 200 Native Amer American remains available for return to tribes. And the remains of at least 206 Native Americans have not been made available for return. As your reporting you know, shows, Yale University holds the vast um, majority of those remains that have not been made available. And we can also learn that there are in, in the state at least 12 institutions that have reported um, Native American remains taken from from Connecticut. So that can be in, in Connecticut or outside of Connecticut. Mary, is there anything else you'd like to add to that? I would uh, just add that in, in the Northeast, um, there's sort of the, the more big name institutions that exist, uh, Harvard, for sure, Harvard Peabody, um, American Museum of Natural History. These are very influential institutions um, in the history of, of archaeology um, in America. And I think that what we understand about their collections from from the data and reviewing reviewing the data line by line 
is that um, their their collections began just as I had described early in the show um, with these sort of like sending archaeologists, uh, you know, out into like the Southwest and the Midwest um, to collect um, and to collect in large quantities and bring and have these um, what was taken from graves sent back to New York and to um, to Cambridge to for, for research and they, they and they have stayed there um, over over more than a century. You've been listening to Mary Hudetz and Logan Jeffrey, who are ProPublica reporters who worked on the repatriation project. Mary will be staying with us. I want to thank Logan Jaffe so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Our investigative reporter, Kate Seltzer, will also be joining us in the studio after a short break. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. A federal law requires federally funded museums to return Native American human remains and sacred objects to appropriate tribes and their descendants. But a new Connecticut Republic report found that five institutions in Connecticut have not fully complied. Joining us now to discuss that report is our very own Kate Seltzer. She's our investigative reporter for our Accountability Project. Thanks so much for joining us today, Kate. Thank you for having me. And still with us is Mary Hudetz. She's a member of the Crow Tribe in Montana and a ProPublica reporter. She's also the former president of the Native American Journalists Association and has covered Native American issues for more than a decade. And just want to remind our listeners that you can also give us a call at 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Kate, you reported that the Yale Peabody Museum has the most unrepatriated human remains with more than 
half of those being made available for return. And I want to read a quick note from one of your reports that the remains of at least 300 indigenous individuals have not yet been made available for repatriation. That is, they have not gone through the process of consulting with tribes on cultural affiliation. So you spoke with a professor at Yale who volunteered with some of her students to return remains to Hawaii. Can you talk about that? Sure. So I spoke with Hiile Hobart, who um, herself is Indigenous Hawaiian, and she had been at Yale um, as a professor of Indigenous Studies for a pretty short period of time and um, was on a tour of the Peabody Museum, um, happened to encounter the repatriation coordinator, um, who asked if she would like to see some remains, and she expressed interest. Um, and so she became instrumental in this effort to return. Um, it's, it's called Evie, which is um, ancestral bones from Hawaii, um, to repatriate those remains. Um, she involved a couple of students on campus who were also indigenous Hawaiian. Um, and she says that effort was really important because oftentimes these processes don't involve community members, and it was really important to her to think about who was here locally that could be a part of these efforts. Um, so she spent some time uh, learning, uh, going undergoing a pretty rigorous um, effort to understand repatriation protocols and to learn appropriate tra- uh, chants and practices. And um, sort of by chance, there was a repatriation expert who was going to be at Vassar College repatriating some remains that that institution had. Um, So he was sort of able to take human remains from um, the Peabody as well. Um, So really within a very short period of time, she was able to successfully repatriate those remains. Well, it sounds like a very fast process, considering what we've been learning in the last hour, how slow the process really is. Well, you mentioned that you spoke with Jesse Cohen, who is the repatriation registrar at the Yale Peabody Museum. So what did she share with you about this process? What did you learn from it? Um, A couple of things. Um, One, Yale and the Peabody Museum says that they have no interest in holding on to these remains um, and that... They are actively working to repatriate as quickly as possible. Um, Jessie, when I spoke to her, was the only full-time employee working on repatriation at the Peabody. Um, However, since then, I understand that they have hired, uh, I believe, two more people. So three full-time staff members to be working on that process full-time. But yeah, just to reiterate what we've been talking about, they talk about how To do this process sensitively um, just requires a lot of time and resources. So let's take a listen to more of that conversation. Here was her answer explaining why this process might take 30 years. It could be any number of reasons. Uh, You know, I could be ready to repatriate um, a collection of ancestors and associated funerary items, but if the tribe isn't ready to receive that collection, um, or even have a counterpart on their end to to do the consultation, um, it, it just becomes long-winded and relatively laborious sometimes. Um, there are two uh, grants that National NAGPRA makes available, um, consultation grants that are competitive, um, and then repatriation grants that um, are received on a rolling basis. Consultation grants can fund um, consultation with tribes 
and documentation of particular collections, be they remains or um, cultural items, whereas the repatriation grant can help fund the actual physical transfer. Um, but yeah, everything just takes time. So I want to bring Mary Hudetz back to the conversation. She's a ProPublica reporter who worked on the repatriation project. Uh, what are your thoughts about what Jesse Cohen has to say? I think a lot of it, um, it, it echoes things we have heard in our reporting. Um, you know, tribes may want the process to go in a certain way. They may want to be heard. They don't, may not want the process to be rushed because they want the institution to hear them and to sit down with them. Um, I do think that uh, there are institutions that have managed to repatriate everything that they have. And some did it fairly quickly. Um, a lot of times, you know, an example of that would be the Bishop Museum in Hawaii. We were just uh, speaking about native, uh, a source from native, from Hawaii, who's native Hawaiian. Um, but the institute, a lot of the other institutions that have repatriated everything, um, are in Colorado, uh, or, or some of them. Um, and in our conversations there, uh, just speaking with someone from the history of Colorado last week or recently. And, um, you know, I think what we, what I, I, it's hard because we're, even as reporters, we're still looking at this a little bit from the outside. Um, but that conversations are happening, um, that they're facilitating the process, that they're having um, tribes come in, uh, they're funding that those visits, um, and maybe not always with an NAGPRA grant from the federal government, um, but and that there is, that the conversation is moving towards repatriation. We hear a lot um, in the world of, of NAGPRA, um, people who, who call themselves practitioners, that there is a, a will, uh, what they call institutional will. And um, I would sort of kind of admit in our reporting, which is ongoing, that I think that might be sort of one of the things that we that it's been hard to sort of quantify or, 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 uh, or like produce through documents, but that to understand that there's something called institutional will and it's that institutions want to repatriate what they have. Um, and, and I, in fairness, I think that um, it sounds like Yale saying they would like to repatriate too, but how do you do that? How do you initiate consultation and reach out to tribes? Um, NAGPRA only required, say this briefly, that um, institutions reach out once, um, that they file their inventories with the federal government and they show that they had done consultation. In a lot of instances, 20, 25 years ago, that meant simply sending a letter to tribes that were re receiving hundreds of letters from institutions. Um, so what does consultation mean to an institution? I think that's always a good question. And Kate, um, you're sitting here with me and I'm seeing you nodding. I'm wondering if you want to respond to what Mary just said. Is that something that you experienced in your own reporting? Yeah, I just wanted to echo that idea of institutional will. Um, a lot of the people that I spoke to in my reporting um, said that, you know, even five years ago, they wouldn't be having these interviews with me. Um, they wouldn't be as willing to have these conversations. So I think we're witnessing sort of an important cultural shift, um, but also seeing some external pressures. Um, we mentioned earlier the Joe Biden administration um, is working with the Department of the Interior to speed up this process in some ways. Um, so there's sort of both uh, an, an external and I think internal shift um, as we see more public pressure and 
uh, more stringent legislation uh, pushing these processes forward. And from your own reporting, have you discovered what other museums here in Connecticut are still holding human remains? Sure. So as we've mentioned a couple of times, um, the Peabody Museum has the most. Um, the Stanford Museum, um, I believe, has the remains of eight individuals. Um, their statement was that they uh, have worked to complete the repatriation process. That's not what the NAGPRA database shows, and they were sort of unable to provide any documentation that counters what the database shows. Um on the other hand, the University of Connecticut, which um, maintains the State Natural History Museum, um, the database shows that they have actually repatriated all of the remains in their collection. However, an interview with UConn says that there are still remains that just have yet to go through the process and have yet to be updated in the database. Um, on the other hand, the Wesleyan University has the remains of, I believe, 15 individuals. Um, they describe those as culturally unidentifiable. Um, and they had a consultation with tribes in 2011 and then again in 2022. Um, so we're sort of seeing uh, some of what we were just saying, that kind of extended process of what consultation means and how frequently they're doing it. Um, the Barnum Museum and the Bruce Museum have both completed their repatriation processes. Um, and I, I think those are all of the institutions. There are six in Connecticut that have or had uh, the remains of indigenous people. Well, clearly this is going to be something that we'll be following in the near future and the far future. You've been listening to Kate Seltzer, who is our very own investigative reporter here at Connecticut Public with the Accountability Project, as well as Mary Hudetz, who is a ProPublica reporter who worked on the Repatriation Project. They will both be staying with us to continue our conversation about the ethics of repatriation. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Back with us to continue this conversation about the repatriation of indigenous remains by museums where we live is Kate Seltzer. She's our investigative reporter with the Accountability Project here at Connecticut Public, as well as ProPublica reporter Mary Hudetz. And you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So we mentioned earlier that we spoke with Connecticut Humanities Executive Director Jason Mancini, who spoke with us about how the good faith parameter of NAPRA, the federal law, is critical. And this can't just be a box checked or a single letter sent. Let's take a listen. What I think what was striking to me is that, you know, there were so many years down the road, these relationships have never really, really been developed. And, you know, there's an expectation that tribes are going to be responsive on some level, you know, and there, in many ways, the, the people charged with uh, managing cultural affairs and, and, and these specific types of requests are, are, they're inundated with other requests, you know, in and amongst many other things and, and sort of a, 
uh, a renewal of interest in, in inclusion and diversity and so on. And many tribes just simply don't have the capacity or structures to navigate all of this. Um, and I think that speaks to the, the larger dynamic of power and history and uh, inequity. You know, one of the challenges here, and I think most people aren't recognizing, including state officials and, and state departments, is that working with tribes takes time. Um, relationships don't happen automatically because a piece of legislation happens. Um, so, you know, that takes years. It takes trust building. Um, and, and one of the challenges with Connecticut is, you know, there's there's a trust deficit. Um, with tribal communities. And I, I really, truly and sincerely appreciate the recent legislative efforts in working with tribal communities and building that support. Um, um, but it will continue to take time um, to engage tribes um, in whatever process um, involves them. And let's not lose sight of the fact that you know, three of the tribes are only state recognized and, and have very little resources to do anything and don't have deep tribal economies to support this kind of work. Um, so, you know, I think we need to consider all of that um, in the equation. Kate, you've just listened to what Jason Mancini has to say. You know, what are your thoughts about about what he just mentioned? Yeah, I, I think that all makes sense. Um, and I, I think it's in line with some of the reporting from um, museums that I've I've reached out to. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, based on your reporting, we've also learned, too, that only 19 states have tribal historic preservation officers, and Connecticut is not one of them. Um, have you come across this? And what do you think about this process making it more complex? Um, I, I'll be honest, I, I have not encountered that too much. Um, I, I did reach out to a, a tribal historic officer um, early on in my reporting, and he mentioned that he was, um, as he said, sort of in, in response to the ProPublica story um, inundated with interview requests. And he expressed some confusion um, and a little bit of frustration that this was a conversation that was happening now. Um, he was sort of like, I don't, I don't understand why we're talking about this now. The law has been on the books for 30 years. Um, so I, I wasn't able to get an interview with him. But I think that sort of speaks to how this process can be really disconnected. And a lot of us are learning about NAGPRA um, sort of for the first time. I certainly was. But this has been an ongoing uh, battle for um, indigenous tribes for 30 years. Um, and, you know, I think I think there is a disconnect in how that operates. And Mary, I want to pose the same question to you. You know, what do you have to say with what Jason Manzini has to say? Yeah, a couple of points. Um, one, it, the Congressional Budget Office, when NAGPRA was becoming law, thought this process would take five to 10 years. They thought that um, there would not I, I think a lot of people did not foresee, I, I was not present at the time, but um, this culturally unidentifiable loophole that exists that has a, museums have um, sometimes maybe in good faith, but other times have, have leaned on or exploded um, in holding on to human remains. Um, and then the other thing, um, you know, the point is, I am 
a citizen of a tribal nation too, the point that he makes about tribes and their capacities. I mentioned it earlier here, like it, it sits with me all the time. Um, and I think, you know, when I hear institutions say that it, it really, it, it really has to be the tribe making the claim. It has to be the tribe reaching out to us, initiating the process after we sent that initial letter to them that 20 years ago. Um, that I just, I think raises a lot of um, questions for me as a reporter. Um, I, I, I think, sure, I th- that is is technically following the law. That's the minimum of what it requires. The institutions that have repatriated everything, I don't think have rep- have approached their work that way, at least in the few interviews I've, I've done with them. Um, and then I would also say that to, to put that burden back on the tribes, um, kind of shows the inequities of NAGPRA and the way it sort of gave museums final say on repatriations that Logan mentioned earlier doesn't penalize them heavily if, if they failed, failed to follow the law. Um, and then also to put that on tribes, I think also um, what I always remember with that is that this whole entire problem was not one created by tribes. Um, it was institutions that went out across the country and raided graves, um, plundered them. Uh, there are even examples in history, which I think are so profound, of tribes, tribal leaders not wanting it to happen. They were not, they, they truly did not want these, their ancestors taken. It goes against a lot of um, deep cultural beliefs among Native people. Um, and so I think you see you start to see, I mean, in ProPublica, we, we pursue stories where we've seen injustice and you can start to see how um, things are not maybe working equitably um, between museums and tribes when those dynamics are at play. Well, I want to thank Mary Hudetz, who is a ProPublica reporter working on the repatriation project for spending time with us today. Thank you so much, Mary. Thank you for having me. And Kate Seltzer, who is our very own investigative reporter here at Connecticut Public, also want to thank you so much for spending time with us and sharing your report with Where We Live. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. 